We're in John chapter 13. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible, beginning at verse 31 and uh, going down through verse 38. Uh, Judas has just left the upper room to betray Jesus. And Jesus is now talking to the 11 that remain. Therefore, when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you. A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. A preacher once asked a Bible class, what do you do with the commandments in the Bible? And a little old lady raised her hand and said, I underline them in blue. Well, I guess that's okay if it helps you to spot the commands, but then the question is, What then do you do with the commands after you've underlined them in blue? And as you know, the point of Bible commandments is not that we go through and underline them all in blue, but that we obey them. Well, if I were to ask all of you to ask all of you to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 on the question, how well do you love others? I would guess most of us would be in the 7 to 8 range. Maybe somebody might dare a 9, probably. Nobody a a 10. I mean, hey, nobody's perfect, right? But, you know, most of us probably think, you know, I'm a basically loving person. Boy, I wish my wife would listen to this message, though. You know, she's got some room to grow there. I wish my kids would, would, would... improve a bit on that, or my roommate, or whoever it is that you kind of have your skirmishes with. But me, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pretty loving. And then you read the fine print in Jesus' command, and your ratings will plummet, I guarantee. He says in verse 34 again, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And the fine print I'm referring to is that little phrase, even as I have loved you. Whoa. You see, suddenly the command kind of bumps up to a Mount Everest command. 
You know, there are a few people who make the summit of Everest, but nobody lives up there. You know, they get up and they get down. And in a similar way, once in a while, we might be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, I really nailed it. I love that person just as Jesus has loved me. But not many of us live there. And so this is the kind of command you got to keep coming back to. It's like the other Mount Everest command, and this one is directed to us guys, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, here it comes, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Whoops. None of us guys meet that daily without fail. We all need to keep working at that command. Uh, You can't ever get to a point where you say, well, I've got that one down, now let's try another command. No, this is the kind of command that daily I have to go before the Lord and, and keep working on it. Now, you may wonder in our text, well, in what sense is Jesus's command a new command? Because in Leviticus, in the law, in Leviticus 19.18, it commands, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as you know, the whole of the law is summed up in those two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. Well, I agree with most scholars who say that the newness in Jesus's command is this new standard. See, it's not just love one another as much as you love yourself, and we all love ourselves quite well. No, he ups the ante. Love one another just as I have loved you. It's a new standard. And so the main idea I'm going to present to you today is very simple for me to state and very impossible for me to fulfill and you to fulfill unless we all walk in the Spirit because the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And... Jesus here is commanding us to love one another, even as he loved us. Now, the crux of that command is then to understand, well, how does then Jesus love us? And our text, if you just work through it straight, as I'm going to do, verse to verse, there are five ways we can see that Jesus, in fact, loves us, ways in which we need to work at loving one another. First of all, you note in verses 31 and 32 that Jesus' love was a costly love. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Now, if you've been tracking in John with us, that statement takes you back to John 12, And verse 23, where after learning that some Greeks were seeking him, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And as we saw when we looked at that, he was referring specifically to the cross. The cross would be the hour where Jesus was glorified. And the cross glorified both Jesus and his Father. Now, on one level, the cross was the epitome of humiliation and shame. There is simply no more degrading way and and excruciating way to die than to be stripped naked 
have your back flogged till it's in ribbons of skin, and then nailed to a splintery cross and hung up as a public spectacle to die a slow and painful death in front of all the mockers. It was humiliating. And yet in another way, the cross was the epitome of glory. It was the epitome of glory, both for Jesus and for the Father. To glorify God means that you display or exalt his perfect attributes. And there is no place in all of history where the perfect attributes of God were more on display than when the sinless Son of God bore our sin on the cross. It was a display, of course, of the great love of God in sending his own Son to bear the penalty we deserve. It was the display of God's righteousness because God could not just dismiss our sin and say, hey, try harder next time not to do it. He had to have the penalty paid or he would not be just. And so it displayed God's justice. It displayed God's mercy and displayed his grace in that through the cross, he now offers to all sinners eternal life, a complete pardon from all sin, if we will believe in Jesus as our substitute who died for our sin. And so God's love, God's grace, God's justice, God's mercy, his patience, all of these attributes of God come together in a focal point at the cross. And so it glorifies Jesus and the Father. And then in verse 32, I believe Jesus is referring to his resurrection and ascension when he says, If God is glorified in him through the cross, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was the stamp of approval of the Father on Jesus' death as the payment for our sins. His raising him says, I accept that death. Jesus' ascension into heaven exalted him as the Apostle Paul uh, says in Ephesians 1.21, to God's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. But the point is, the cross was costly. It was the most costly demonstration of God's love that we can find in all of history. And that theme is displayed over and over in the Bible. You're all familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved, he gave. Paul personalizes that in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then here's where he personalizes it. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Can you personalize that? And say, Jesus loved me. And he gave himself up for me because my faith is in him. Or again, in Ephesians 5, 2, Paul brings together the idea 
of we should love because God loved when he says walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And we've already seen Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. It was costly. And then we all know John 3.16. This is 1 John 3.16, which we also ought to know. And that is, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, I realize it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, Hebrews 12, uh, that through the cross, Jesus would bring many sons to glory. So there was a, a goal, a glory for him in doing it. But the point is, he had to sacrifice himself. And love is like that. It's often costly. We can't sacrifice ourselves as a substitute, as Jesus did, for someone's sins. But love confronts our selfishness. And we have to die to self to love one another. The second aspect about Jesus' love is in verse 33, and that is it was a caring love. It was costly, but it was caring. He says, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. There are two ways we see Jesus' care for the disciples in that verse. Number one is how he addresses them, little children. It's an interesting word in Greek in that it only occurs here and nowhere else in all of the Greek New Testament, except in 1 John, where the apostle whom Jesus loved uses it seven times. But it's not in the Gospels. It's not anywhere except in 1 John. Little children. It's a tender word. It shows the words of a father for his little children who need his help. They need his protection. And then there's a second way here we see Jesus' tender or care, caring love for his own in that he explains to them that he's going to be leaving them soon. But then he promises them, but we'll get together again. You will come to me, he tells Peter in verse 36. And then, as we'll see next time in chapter 14, he says, I'm going to come to you and receive you unto myself. And so the picture is a dad who's got to maybe travel away from his little children. And he gathers them together and he says, kids, uh, I have some difficult news. I'm going to be gone for a while, but I'm coming back. And then we'll be together. We'll be together again. And so that's the picture here of Jesus. He had tender feelings for his own. There used to be a very popular Bible teacher when I was in college, and he would hammer away that the most important thing in the Christian life is to have Bible doctrine in your head. And uh, I'm certainly a proponent of knowing Bible doctrine, but the problem was This guy said, love is not a feeling, it's a mental attitude, and frankly, he showed that. He was often very rude, very insensitive and arrogant, and he wanted to downplay feelings at the expense of head knowledge, 
they're both needed. Certainly, we need to know Bible doctrine, but if it isn't making you more tender and more caring for God's children, then it isn't doing what it's supposed to do. And not only Jesus, but Paul showed just a heart of care for, for his disciples. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, Paul wrote to that new church, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. You've seen the picture. A nursing mom just almost like it's a breakable little fragile thing, which it is, a little life. That's how Paul says we cared for you. He goes on, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. And then he adds, because you had become very dear to us. So Jesus' love was costly. Jesus' love was caring, but thirdly, Jesus' love was commanded. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, he went in obedience to God's commandment. The Father commanded the Son. The Son took on human flesh and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was being obedient, but now he commands us as his followers to be obedient in loving one another. The fact that Jesus commands us to love means there are no excuses when you don't do it. You can do it. Certainly in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the flesh. But it's a command that Jesus gives, and he always gives grace with commands that we can do it. And just as Jesus obeyed the Father and sacrificed himself to go to the cross for our salvation, we are to obediently sacrifice ourselves for others' good. Not in a substitutionary way, of course, but... We must sacrifice ourselves, and the only way to do that is obedience to God, that's the motive, in order to build up others in Christ, which is their ultimate good. Here's how this meets the road. I've had husbands come to me in the past and say, "Uh, Steve, uh, my wife and I are going to get a divorce. Well, why are you going to get a divorce? Well, I just don't love her anymore. I just don't love her anymore. And uh, I have to remind him, now, did you take a marriage vow? And was that vow as long as we both shall love? Or was it as long as we both shall live? It seems to me it was the latter. We vowed to be together as long as we both shall live. And if you're not loving her, then you're being disobedient to Christ And so you need to be obedient to Christ by loving your wife. Well, at that point, a husband will usually protest and say, yeah, but I don't feel love for her anymore. You know, we used to have the good feelings. We were all in love and all of that. But we've just had years of anger and years of bitterness and years of fighting. And the feelings are gone as if, poof, no, no way to get them back. Well, at that point, I go to the little diagram that you're all familiar with from the uh, Campus Crusades Four Spiritual Laws booklet, 
where there's a train, and it's an old steam engine, where you have the engine, and then you have the coal car that feeds the engine, and then they don't have these anymore on the trains that go by Flagstaff, but they used to have a caboose. The caboose would trail the train. And the point of the diagram is the engine is God's word, the truth of God's word, and the coal car is the faith and obedience that uh, feeds that, and the caboose is the feelings that follow. And if you begin by faith to obey God's word and love your wife, do loving things for her, figure out ways you can sacrifice yourself to build her up in Christ, guess what? The feelings will come back eventually. But you don't run the marriage by your feelings. You run the marriage by your commitment and obedience to God's word. That's the point. And so you can't bail out of the commandment just because you say, well, I just don't have any feelings anymore. Let's face it. If Jesus had followed his feelings, we wouldn't be saved. He would have said, you know, I really don't feel like the cross is a good thing today. It's just kind of a difficult way to go, thanks. I think I'd rather go have a latte down at the coffee shop and uh, pass on that. Thankfully, he gave himself. His love was costly. His love was caring. His love was in obedience to a commandment of the Father. But then fourthly, Jesus' love was conspicuous, and that's in verse 35. Verse 35 says, By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus wasn't just talking about having nice thoughts for someone that nobody else can see. He was talking about translating those good thoughts, and love always begins in your mind, into observable, demonstrable action. So it stems from the heart but it works its way out into behavior. And it's the sort of love that the world perks up and says, whoa, did you see that? Did you see that? Those people must be followers of Jesus. Now, it's sad that the church has not done very well on this front. As you know, the church is fractured into thousands of denominations, many of which just arose over petty Disputes and issues and fights and relational conflicts. Back in the 1970s, some church growth gurus came up with the observation that people like to be with people who are just like them. You know, less conflict. Everybody likes people who are like them because we all like ourselves. And so white people like to be with white people, and black people like to be with black people, and uh, rich college graduates like to hang out with other successful rich college graduates, and uh, rednecks, they don't like to be with long-haired liberals who are, you know, in favor of gun control. In fact, rednecks like to use long-haired liberal people who are in favor of gun control for their target practice. And so the idea is, if you want to build your church, you decide which niche in society you want to target, and you market the church to that niche, and they called that the homogeneous unit principle. 
get everybody who likes everybody together and you'll build a big church. Wonderful idea, except for one small glitch. It's totally unbiblical. It is absolutely 180 degrees opposed to Scripture. Galatians 3.28. Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You've got to understand, those groups hated each other. There's neither slave nor free man. There was no greater gap socioeconomically than slave and free man. There's neither male nor female in the sense of being in Christ, he says, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Or in Colossians, he makes the same point in Colossians 3.11. He says, in the church, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, uh, the Greeks said, if you don't speak Greek, you're, you're like some guy that's mumbling, bar, 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 bar. So they're barbarians. That's where the word comes from. They're a bunch of dodos, you know, we might say. Barbarian and Scythian, they were a bunch of wild warriors and sla- uh, slave and freemen. But Christ is all and in all. And so the church is the family of God. And in a family, God has designed it so you got differences. Some of you experienced that at Thanksgiving with extended family. He went, wow, they're different than I am. But have you ever thought about the diversity among Jesus' 12 disciples? Jesus chose a guy named Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a radical terrorist group in their day. They were a political party, and they used intrigue and violence and force and deception to try and achieved their goal of liberating Israel from Roman domination. And they especially despised one segment, and that was the tax collectors, because those guys had sold their souls to Rome to make money at the expense of the Jews. So, man, those guys were gunning for tax collectors. And then you know where I'm going. Jesus chose a guy named Matthew, Levi, He was a tax collector, wrote the first gospel. And uh, he, he plops both of those guys in the same small group and said, look each other in the eye, guys. You love each other, and the world out there will know something. You're my disciple. It'll be conspicuous. Because tax collectors didn't like the zealots, and the zealots despised the tax collectors. Now, That kind of conspicuous love has a couple of implications for us. For one thing, people have asked me the question, well, why don't we have a contemporary service and a traditional service in our church? You know, the the contemporary service for everybody that likes rock music and blue jeans and wears sandals and, you know, the hang loose kind of service. And the traditional service for people who like to dress up and sing hymns to organ accompaniment. Why don't we do that? And my answer is because that divides the church along age brackets. And you don't divide families, grandparents, grandchildren. I'm going to be with about 10 of them in a few minutes. Uh, We need each other. And I just have this hunch that in the body of Christ... The young people need to learn some hymns. They're solid. They're good. They've been handed down for centuries. 
And you need to know those hymns and hand them off to your kids. And I have a hunch that some of the older generation needs the enthusiasm and the hope that the young people bring in to say, boy, God's handing the torch to a new generation and you can come alongside those young people and disciple them and tell them how to get through some of the hardships in life that they inevitably will face. See, the church is a family. We need it both. Another implication of this is, I think the church should reflect the racial and the socioeconomic uh, milieu of our own city. In the city of Flagstaff, there are approximately 64% white folks, 18% Hispanic, 12% Native Americans, 2% black, and 2% Asian. And by God's grace, I want this church to reflect that. I don't want us breaking up into, you know, different ethnic groups and churches and all of that and different economic No. We are to demonstrate the love of Christ by that diversity so that the world again says, whoa, what's going on over there? When Marla was a new Christian back in the early 70s, she went to a a church that met in a park. And the history of that church was this youth pastor started seeing a bunch of hippies coming to Christ. These were kids, most of them under 30, you know, back then, the long hair, which was pretty radical, uh, blue jeans, bare feet. Just kind of, you know, get in touch with the earth kind of kids. A lot of them into drugs and free love and everything. But he started sharing the gospel, and some of these kids came to Christ. Well, needless to say, they didn't put on a coat and tie the first Sunday they showed up at his church. And uh, they started multiplying and bringing their friends. And the Baptist church, of which he was a part, said, you know, we don't want that kind of person in this church. I mean, what will people think if they see all this these hippies coming into our church. Well, for starters, they might think those people must be followers of Jesus. Look how they accept those kids and love those kids. But instead, they said, no, you're not welcome. So he left. He went down the road to another church and said, can I bring these kids here? Nope, sorry. He did that for four or five churches. And finally, after getting shut out of all of them, he took them to the park. Sad commentary. I could share a positive story. I probably should. But in the early 70s, I I attended um, Ray Stedman's church up in in Palo Alto, right near Stanford a few times. And that was wonderful because you'd see little old grannies sitting next to a guy with long hair and a T-shirt and probably, uh, you know, out of that kind of background. And she'd be loving them. And I heard stories of they'd invite these kids over for dinner after church and just share the love of Christ. And it was a wonderful display of the kind of conspicuous love that Christians should display before the world. So the love of Christ then was costly. It was caring. It was in obedience to a a commandment. And it was conspicuous. But finally, you note that Jesus' love was committed love. And that's in verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? He missed the bit about love. <laughs> you know, he didn't say, Lord, what, how do we love? No, no, no. He was just fixated on verse 33. Where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, I've preached a bunch of other messages on Peter's denial and the lessons we can learn from his failure. And uh, I, I listed some of those in the printed notes. And you can look them up online and just study it for all the benefits that come from seeing why Peter failed and how we can learn from that not to fail ourselves. In a nutshell, I think the main thing was Peter trusted himself. He was overconfident, thinking he was strong when in fact he was weak. And that's when we fail because the Apostle Paul says, it's when I'm weak that I'm strong because when I'm weak and know it, we're always weak, we just don't always know it. When I know I'm weak, then I trust in the Lord. And he gives me strength. But I I can't focus on that this morning for sake of time. But I want to focus instead... On Jesus' commitment to Peter and to the other ten disciples here, he knew in advance they all would run the minute Jesus was arrested. He knew that Peter would do more than run, that he would deny Jesus before those little servant girls. And the amazing thing is, he didn't say, you know what, guys, you're not apostle material. Sorry, nice try, You guys gave it a good shot, but I'm going to go find some other apostles who will be faithful all the time. He didn't do that. Instead, he loved these disciples to the end, as we saw in uh, John 13, 1, or to the uttermost. And he shows that love, and we'll get to this in John 20 and John 21, by restoring Thomas after he doubted, restoring Peter after he denied him. That's committed love. Love means being committed to the other person's highest good. And the highest good for every person is that he or she would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Because it's not good for a person to sin. Sin destroys people. It's good for a person to grow in holiness so that their lives glorify the Lord and Savior. Commitment is the glue of relationships. It's the glue that holds marriages together because there isn't a single Christian marriage that does not have some conflict. We're different. We don't understand each other. Male, female is a big enough difference, but then there's all the other differences. And so we got to work constantly at communication and, and forgiveness and restoration and and understanding. In Ephesians 5, there after Paul commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, he goes on and points out that Christ's love is a sanctifying love, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so that commitment should make a husband want his wife to be all that God wants her to be. And the same wives to husbands. And the same church members to church members. It always grieves me when I miss someone at church after a few weeks. And I say, well, where where is that person? And I find out, 
oh, they had a falling out with this other person, and now they're going to another church. They don't work through it. They just run from it. And that's not showing the love of Christ to the world. Now, bringing together all these elements that I've presented to you, here's a rough definition of biblical love. Love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment, which in obedience to Jesus shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. I think you can see the five elements in there. Self-sacrificing, that's the costliness of love. We have to sacrifice our own selfishness in very practical ways to love others. The caring aspect means we're never callous, we're never rude. Love is kind. The commandment facet of love means we're doing it in obedience to our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And so our motive is, Lord, I want to please you in my relationships. The conspicuous part of love means it's not just nice thoughts. You know, I hope somebody helps her with the dishes. <laughs> no, you, you get up and do it. You know, you, you show it in demonstrable action. And then the commitment of love is my goal is to see the other person be more and more like Jesus Christ, which is for God's glory. Now, I just want to wrap it up by saying this. I realize that what I've been describing is ideal. And we live in a very fallen world, and it's very difficult to apply this, especially with difficult people. It's easy to love somebody nice. But it's hard to love somebody who's just kind of hard to love. So I want to give you a few thoughts here. And these are just seed thoughts. You're going to have to work on them yourself in further detail. But the question comes up, does loving someone require that I like him or her? There's a big difference, isn't there, between loving someone and liking someone. Does it mean I need to develop a close friendship with a difficult person? Well, as I've been chewing on this and looking at the example of Jesus, I have to say not necessarily. Because Jesus, when he was on earth in the flesh, did not spend time equally with everyone. He focused mainly on 12 men. And among those 12, he had three who were special, Peter, James, and John. He took them on certain Occasions like the Transfiguration, and the other nine didn't get to see that. And among those three, there was one who calls himself the apostle whom Jesus loved, John. So there was differences. Um, Jesus didn't even spend time with his half-brothers when he had an occasion to do so. We saw that in John chapter 7. Uh, they wanted to go, him to go with them up to the feast, and he said, no, you guys go. I'm not going. And then he went later by himself. Now, they weren't yet believing in him. He could have said, wow, great opportunity to spend some time with my brothers. I'm going, man. He didn't do that. So I conclude by that that we don't necessarily have to be spending gobs of time with someone to show them the love of Christ. Jesus loved his enemies. And that, in, that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who eventually crucified him. But read Matthew 23 sometime and see how he loved his enemies. You brood of 
vipers. Woe to you. Woe to you. Read the love of Jesus in that chapter. It's there. That's how that love expressed itself. He told his disciples when he sent them out on a mission, if somebody doesn't accept you and your word, shake the dust off your feet and protest and move on. Now, he had told his disciples, love your enemies. Apparently, that's how they were to love their enemies. Uh, Biblical love seeks the highest good of the one loved. And that means sometimes biblical love has to confront because we can't embrace sin and love the person. And sometimes it means letting the person experience the consequences of his sin so that he learns that sin isn't a good thing. It's painful. And so you don't bail him out all the time. And, and sin doesn't help a person continue in his irresponsible, sinful ways by coming along and just kind of helping him out all the time so that he's never confronted with, you know what, you're responsible for some things that you're not doing. Because Paul in Galatians 6, he does say, bear one another's burdens. But then a few verses later, he says, but each one shall bear his own load. And what he means is, there are some burdens that are excessive. Yeah, come along and help a brother. But there are some burdens that we're all responsible to bear ourselves. And if you help him bear his own load, you're not helping him. So what I'm doing here, I hope, is not giving you a cop-out from loving difficult people, but rather what Paul says in Philippians 1.9, where my aim is Paul's aim, that your love may abound still more and more, notice, in real knowledge and all discernment. Real love takes real knowledge and it takes all discernment. So here's what I would recommend you do to apply this message. And that is get in mind over and over and over enough till you got these characteristics in mind. First Corinthians 13, four through seven, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't brag. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly, or it's not rude is another way to put that. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So get those in mind, and then go through and read Paul's letters Read how Paul dealt with people in the book of Acts and read the Gospels and see how Jesus applied love in his life. And you might be surprised to see Jesus and Paul were not always patient and loving in that sense. Not always kind. In other words, they weren't syrupy. My concern is so often, you know, oh, we just got to love and it's all syrupy mush. But as I said, Jesus got pretty in your face with the Pharisees. And Paul struck a guy blind in Acts chapter 13, who was opposing the gospel. And if you say, well, he must have been in the flesh. No, because it specifically says, filled with the Holy Spirit. He struck the guy blind. 
So love is not an easy subject. It's one that we always have to keep working at. I have to keep working at it. It's one that requires great discernment sometimes. How do I love this difficult person in this difficult situation? But let's work at it. That we might love one another as Jesus has loved us. Father, you know our shortcomings. You know my failures at love. Thank you for the love of Christ that keeps on loving me when I fail. You know my brothers and sisters, some of them, maybe this morning, had a quarrel, a spat. And they need to learn to love, as we all do. Help us to have this kind of of costly, caring, obedient, conspicuous, committed love that Jesus had for us and that that would all be to your glory that the world would see us and say wow they have something different and that they might come to know Jesus and his love on the cross I pray in Jesus name Amen